remind you, next week we're having uh, baptism, um, a regular service here. Already mentioned, we'll have a picnic and uh, baptism for believers, those who have, who are followers of Christ who have not yet been baptized. And uh, we have several already who indicate they'd like to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized as a follower of Christ yet, I would encourage you to consider it. I'd love to talk with you uh, after the service or um, a time that's convenient perhaps this week. Also, coming, it's, it's not in your program, and it was not uh, on the screen earlier. We're going to have a child dedication on September 22nd. So um, if you have a child and you would like to consider dedicating your child to God, uh, please let us know. We're glad to talk to you about that. Okay, we're going to continue this morning, part two of Sound Doctrine, Sound Practice. What a boring series title, but it's actually really exciting, and that's what I want to talk about today. Um, Think about Sound Doctrine. Uh, We think of doctrine as being sort of dead and empty. Um, Doctrine is about God's Word, and it's God's breathe, and it comes from God, and it's very much alive. Now, we humans sometimes make it pretty boring and our lives make it dead, but God's word is not dead. It is very powerful and alive, and it is the uh, foundation of our walk with Christ. Now, we're going to develop that. Uh, in January 2011, scientific... So, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers would be glad to bring you one. Just slip up your hand. We have several. In January 2011... Scientific American published an article entitled, What Causes Someone to Act on Violent Impulses and Commit Murder? And this came right out of the 2011 shootings in Tucson, Arizona, where six people were killed and where Gabrielle Giffords was shot, U.S. representative. And uh, in this, in this uh, study, they were concerned about why some people can control their anger and frustration while others lack self-control. One particular interview in this research focused on a University of Michigan professor, Richard Nisbet, considered to be by some as the world's greatest authority on intelligence. Nisbet is quoted as saying he'd rather have his own son be high in self-control rather than high in intelligence. According to Nisbet, self-control is key to a well-functioning life because our brain makes us easily susceptible to all sorts of influences. For example, watching a movie showing violent acts predisposes us to act violently. Even just listening to violent rhetoric makes us more inclined to be violent. So, if you want a secular source... The leading expert on intelligence believes that self-control is more important than intelligence. Think about this. Self-control is a character quality. This is about developing character. It's more important than being smart, at least this expert says. In Titus 2, the Apostle Paul refers to self-control four different times. It's about character development. That's what he's going to be talking about in chapter 2. Today we're going to continue with part 2 of Sound Doctrine, Sound Practice. Last week we had the need for leadership, and we talked about godly leaders. 
and they were elders or overseers. And today we're going to talk about the need for godly living. So, starting in chapter 2, we begin with, if you follow along in your outline, God's grace leads us to godly living. God's grace leads us to godly living. I've had more exciting sermon outlines than this one, but this is stuff is absolutely foundational. God's grace leads us to godly living. And the first thing in verse 1, sound doctrine aligns with God's character. Sound doctrine aligns with God's character. Verse 1, to Titus. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, a 40-something young leader. You, Titus, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. That's the command. You, Titus, and to leaders in the church who teach the church, those who teach, whatever level, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, sound doctrine is a key concept in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Sound doctrine. Sound means healthy, spiritually healthy. Doctrine means teaching. We're talking about healthy teaching for healthy spiritual living. Sound doctrine is foundational to all of the Christian life. A healthy, balanced perspective on the Christian life. Oh, my battery is running out here. It's so dark up here. Um, <laughs> and actually, this is what I used to see, and all I get up here are shadows. Uh, so, uh, sound doctrine is biblically accurate, spiritually healthy teaching from God's Word. Sound doctrine aligns us with God's character. God is a God of grace, and so is sound doctrine. God is a God of justice, and so is sound doctrine. God is a God of mercy, and so is sound doctrine. God is a God of love, and so is sound doctrine. God is a, a God of kindness and goodness. And that's all about sound, biblical, healthy teaching from God's Word. Sound doctrine supplies... Oh, thank you, thank you. Sound doctrine supplies a spiritually healthy foundation. Um, Paul speaks of sound doctrine on many occasions. I just want to build this point here a little bit. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Here's what Paul says to Timothy, another young leader. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching or sound doctrine. With faith and love in Christ Jesus... Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Uh, guard this teaching. Keep it accurate. Keep it sound. Keep it before people. It's the lifeblood of the church. And Timothy, this is so important. Uh, hang on to it. Keep this pattern of sound teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3 uh, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Can you imagine that? People won't be interested in what God has to say about marriage, or people won't be interested in what uh, God has to say about the way of salvation. People won't be interested in sound, healthy, biblically solid truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they, they will 
uh, gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. People are more comfortable with tolerance than they are with saying Jesus is the only way. Uh, people are more comfortable with, well, let us do whatever we want to do instead of being commitment to purity before marriage. Um, second, uh, First Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We also know that the law is made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, next slide, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, catch that, and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He's just given a list of things that are contrary. It's all about character qualities that are already contrary to sound doctrine or healthy living, healthy teaching. And the, but sound doctrine conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. One more. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound doctrine or sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Next slide. They have unhealthy interests in controversies, quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, on, and constant friction between people of a corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And... The Apostle Paul is saying sound doctrine is important. Biblically accurate, spiritually healthy teaching is essential for the church and for each one of us. Sound doctrine leads to sound practice. Healthy teaching leads to, leads to spiritually healthy living. With that said, now the Apostle Paul uh, gives a whole list of instructions. And Titus gives here instructions uh, it's two Titus instructions for various groups in the church. And he tells Titus to teach older men. Verse 2. Teach the older men. If Titus is in his 40s, these men are older than him. Um, old like me. And then all those people between. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and endurance. So let's just walk through these. First of all, to be temperate. Uh, just one at a time. There you go. To be temperate, to be moderate, to live in moderation, practicing moderation, self-restrained in eating or drinking or in speech, to be emotionally balanced, older men. That's what uh, God wants of men in the church, worthy of respect. Secondly, live in a God-honoring way, not to be respected because they're old. Some guys want respect just because they're old. God says you should have respect because you're worthy of respect. Um, it's, it's, it's about your character and your character development. It's about living a life worthy of, of the gospel of Christ, uh, Philippians 1.27. A life that's example uh, as a growing Christ follower. This is important, guys, older guys. This is not what you were 10 years ago. This is what you are right now. Are you growing? Are you in the word? Are you walking with Christ? Is you, are, it's not that you're a good person, but are you growing? Are you a man worthy of respect? Next, self-controlled. And, he, and here, here's our list, self-controlled. This is mentioned four times in chapter 2. 
uh, older men are, are, are to be self-controlled. That is, having their passions and desires under the control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, self-control, a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control in eating. Self-control in, with sexuality. Self-control with their anger. Self-control in speech. Next, to be sound in the faith. To be sound in the, the Christian faith. To be sound with a well-balanced uh, sound doctrine, a solid foundation in the Christian faith. The people ought to be able to ask you questions about the Christian faith. Ask you questions about how God has worked in the past, how God uh, worked in the New Testament, how God has worked in your life. Sound in the faith. Sound in love. Understands God's love and understands God's grace. Uh, Practices love and practices grace to those around. Practices grace in their family and their friends and their community. Sound in love. Sound in endurance. In, um, this is somebody who is sound in endurance or solid, who, who has developed endurance in the Christian life, has learned how to cope with trials, has learned how to cope with uh, serious illnesses, has learned how to cope with the loss, death of a loved one, because we all face that. How do you do that? How do you walk through that? How do you heal? How do you grow? How do you deal with God when you lose somebody so close that you love? And an older man should be sound in endurance, and you ought to be able to go to an older man and learn about this. Um, Someone who has been strengthened through trials has become wiser through trials, whether it's uh, health, death, loss of a job, whatever. It has developed endurance. Okay, that's teaching older guys, older than 40. Now, teach older women. Titus, you have this job now. It includes teaching older women. Some of the commentary says the aged. But let's just say older than Titus, okay? Um, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. They... Can urge the young, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and the children. So older women are supposed to be learning certain things. And then older women, when they, the idea is that they're going to be equipped and then they can train younger women because it's a job of the older women to train the younger women and it's not Titus's job to train the younger women. It's the older women's job to train the younger women. Okay. Um, first of all, he says... To be reverent, to be reverent toward God, not taking God lightly, to show sensitivity to spiritual things, sensitivity to God's honor, to be reverent. An older woman, you're to teach not to be slanders, not to use their time to talk about others because uh, there's sort of an assumption here that older women have gotten along in life further, further that their kids are raised and maybe they have more time on their hands to sit around and talk or... People come to them to talk. And um, so the Apostle Paul instructs that they teach them not to slander, not to, to gossip, not to criticize others. Now, some of you will appreciate, or you already maybe appreciate John Calvin, a great theologian from 1509 to 1564. Um, great theologian in many ways. On this one, maybe he needed a little sensitivity training. He said, talkativeness is a disease of women, and it is increased by old age. 
Take that for what it's worth. Um, so not to be slanders. Also not to be addicted to wine. It's interesting that how many times uh, were they're instructed in the first century not to be addicted to wine. It, it's all across the board. It was a problem in the first century. And it, just like it's a problem today. And usually wine was, was, a, was like the most used beverage in the, in the first century. It was just common beverage with meals. And uh, it, it, from time to time, was misused, even among Christians, as it is today. And um, this should, you should view this as a broader, not addicted to wine, is, is much broader. It refers to alcohol. It refuse, uh, uh, under the influence of alcohol, it, refu- it refers to being under the influence, because that's what it's about, uh, not being self-controlled, but under the influence of something else, like drugs, and even the misuse of prescription drugs, not addicted to wine. Also... Uh, Older women are to teach what is good, focus on doing and teaching good things uh, as opposed to evil, focused on good works, loving acts of kindness, and serving others. Um, Then older women can train younger women. Those who are equipped now can train younger women. And younger women, I hope you will look around for older women who can be models for you, role models, people that you can learn from, people who have walked with God longer than you have. If Maybe if it's raising kids, they are further along in raising kids. By the way, an older woman doesn't have to be much older. Two or three years might be an older woman for some of you who are just a little further along in their walk with Christ. To teach what is good, older women can train younger women. To do what? To love their husbands. Um, this is the only time, by the way, it's very clear in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church because guys forget. And so God picks on where they're weak. And here, the only time in the New Testament where uh, women are instructed to love their husbands, and it's an older woman. It's not the husband who's supposed to teach his wife that. It's the older woman who is to teach um, the, the, the wife to love her husband. Because in the heat of the battle, when you're a little bit younger, I, I, I just know this by memory. You know, I remember when I was young. In the heat of the battle, when hormones are raging, it can be easy to for, forget God's perspective on marriage. You know, when testosterone and estrogen are sort of at odds in marriage and um, sometimes the energy has gone out of the marriage it seems like the life has gone out of the marriage and here an older woman is to remind a younger woman to love her husband I'd like to say this about that Uh, in our early 20s I came to faith when I was 25 so in my early 20s, I was really a jerk, pretty much a jerk. I made it really, really hard for Sue in our marriage. And I'm really grateful, looking back, to think about she had a godly woman in her life named Lois, who was in her 50s. And she came alongside Sue and just encouraged and listened and uh, was so patient with her. And I'm grateful because, I don't know, it was kind of rough back then, and maybe we wouldn't be, be together today if it wouldn't have been somebody like Lois coming along and helping Sue be patient, stay the course, trust God, pray for your husband. And lo and behold, God answered prayer. 
Okay, uh, so older women are, can train younger women to love their husbands, also to love their children. You know, loving children is fairly normal, fairly natural for moms, but yet it's not for every mom. It's not natural for every mom, especially when you get tired and exhausted and frustrated, and it seems like everything you've tried is not working. And older women are to come alongside and to train younger women to love their children because um, sometimes they forget, sometimes they need encouragement. Sometimes they need a sounding board. And it's sad for me that along the way in the church, I found that some older women just want to get rid of all of it. All of the, they, they don't want to help other people. They've done, they've done their ministry. They're done serving. And let them raise their own kids. And let them... And God says in the church, I want older women to be available to help the younger women as they need it. Um, also, to, they're to teach them to be self-controlled. Here it is, second, second mention of self-control. Under the lordship of Christ and in the influence of the Holy Spirit, to be in control of emotions and eating habits and impulses and their sexuality, to be self-controlled. Also, to be pure, morally pure, sec- sexually pure. Sound doctrine leads to sound practice. God is holy, and Scripture is clear. He desires us to be holy. Men and women, male and female, husbands and wives, um, to be pure. Also, to be busy at home. Paul gets into a lot of trouble here for saying this. Um, But let me just say, the focus here is not about working outside the home. The focus here is about the home being a top priority for the woman. Those in the home, the husband, the kids. If a person works outside the home... I don't think that's a big issue here. It's about what's a priority. If a career is a priority, somebody's going to lose out, like the kids and the husband. I'm not saying not have a career. I'm just saying people come before career. Um, If you have children, if you don't have children, that's a separate issue. So uh, to be busy at home and to be kind, not to have uh, an attitude with those around you, not to view oneself as superior, not to have, uh, but to have a generous attitude. That's what it means to be kind. A generous attitude toward others, wanting to be helpful, wanting to serve them, uh, wanting to provide if possible. Also to be subject to their husbands. This is the last one. It's another one. It's not too, occasionally I talk to Christian women who wish that God would just take this verse out of the Bible. And he hasn't yet. There is an order to families that God has designed. I didn't design it. I didn't dream it up. And God designed it. And he, he said the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It's how he's designed it. Now what that doesn't mean is that the husband is in any way bossy or controlling. Um, in fact... The scripture is very clear that husband and wife are equal in value, so it's not like one is more important than the other, or that one is more, you know, the wife may be smarter than her husband. If the guy was smart, he probably tried to marry up, you know. We do things like that. I did, and it worked. It took me a long time to learn, though, about my role to lead, and um, what I find is, is that, gosh, we can make a lot of good decisions if we talk it through, and I listen to her, and she listens to me, and then um, we decide. And sometimes um, she has the best idea, and sometimes I have the best idea. 
But what it means that I'm the head, it means that I'm the one responsible. If it fails, I've failed. And that's not, if, if it was Sue's idea, it doesn't mean it's her fault. It's just, we failed, okay, we, we, it was us, we. It's not her, it's, and I'll take the responsibility. Headship means God uh, is focused on the husband's responsibility. Uh, a, a simple definition of submission is that I've heard that sometimes helps is wives duck so God can hit your husband because husband is responsible. Um, so here's the point. Your behavior can either adorn the word of God or malign the word of God. That's the whole deal here. That's what, that's what Paul's concerned about. Your behavior, the way men and women live, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, the way they live can adorn the word of God and be attractive to people who don't know Jesus yet, or it can totally be confusing, it can be an obstacle to anybody ever wanting to know God because of the way Christians relate. I read re- recently that um, the most powerful influence in people becoming atheists are Christians. Think about that. So your behavior can either adorn the word of God, uh, embe- you know, add character around the word of God, picture what God is like, or it can malign the word of God. A self-focused lifestyle can malign the word of God. And you send an, an inaccurate view of genuine Christi, Christianity. Okay, verse 6. Teach younger men. Okay, Titus, 40-something guy. Teach younger men. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. There it is again, third time, just like other groups. Young men need self-control because they are naturally uh, super competitive. Naturally, they can be loud and boisterous. They can go over the top in handling alcohol, sexuality, food, pride. So... Be self-controlled. Get your life under control under the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lordship of Christ. Teach that to younger men. Verse 7 and 8, this is to Titus. Set an example. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because you have nothing bad to say about us. They have nothing bad to say about us. So the first one, by doing what is good... Titus is pattern for living, a model for pastors and leaders and teachers, is doing good works, practicing generosity and serving the poor. Show integrity, Titus. That's the next one. Honesty. Be above reproach. Uh, integrity with the church funds. Integrity with your money. Honesty in relationships. Truth-telling. No lying. No covering up. No image management. That's a popular among Christians. Image management. Look good. You got it together. It's not the goal. The goal is not to get it together. The goal is to follow Christ. And then he says seriousness, another one. Serious focus on your relationship with God. Serious focus on the mission and and, uh, focusing on lost people. Um, A serious focus on on obedience to Christ. A seriousness. Now, this doesn't mean to be a sour pickle. It doesn't mean to be boring. I sometimes am, but that's not what it's about. It's to be focused. Also, a soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Speech should be God-honoring, truthful, building up others, Christ-centered. Soundness of speech. Verses 9 and 10, teach slaves or employees. We have to remember in the first century, slavery was a social institution. 
I'm not suggesting that it was good. That's what existed when Christianity came on the scene. It was different than American slavery. American slavery is very racial. First century slavery had a lot to do with um, sort of a financial arrangement, indentured servants. Um, they re- some of those received wages for their work, and over time, in a 10-year period of time, they could, they could purchase their freedom. Uh, all I'm saying is it's different and it existed. I'm not trying to suggest that we should uh, be pro for it. Uh, because wherever Christianity has raised up over time, Christianity has raised the value of um, humanity and equality before God and being created in the image of God and uh, has had a powerful impact and influence on um, racism, slavery being uh, taken away. And just this whole, the, it's, it's a biblical teaching about equality. Whether somebody's a Christian or not, it all comes from the scriptures. Study history. That's where it came from. Um, so let's, I'm going to apply this to employer-employer relationships. So first of all, be subject to your supervisor. Be subject to your supervisor. Um, verses 9 and 10 say, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show them they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Uh, to be subject to your supervisor. Are you, are you submissive to your, the person who is over you at your place of work? This is an appropriate behavior for a Christ follower. Um, follow your employer's instructions in everything, is the Apostle Paul's advice here, unless you are asked to disobey God. God's laws, God's values are always higher than uh, your supervisor. However, most of the time, it's just do what your employer says. It doesn't say you have to like it. If it's not illegal, if it's not immoral, then it's normal to do what your employer says. And then he says, and add this, try to please them. Did you, did you see that? Try to please your employer. Well, what if you don't like your employer? Okay, you're off the hook. Nope. Try to please your employer. Be intentional in trying to please your employer. This is sound doctrine. This is healthy, sound um, living a God-honoring perspective. And then not to steal from them. I think, it's, I think like employers in the U.S. lose five to $600 billion a year from theft from their employees. Why do things cost more? Uh, not to steal. Don't steal from your employee. This was a problem in the first century. Still a problem with us today. Uh, also, to show uh, if with your employer to show that you can be fully trusted in the workplace. Your employer should be able to trust you to do your job, whatever it is. Question, have you earned the trust of your employer? Um, here's the point. Your behavior in the workplace can either adorn the teaching about God our Savior or malign teaching about God our Savior. The way you work, do people in your workplace See the life of Jesus displayed 
Or, they, or do they come away thinking, if, you, if you're a Christian, I don't think I want to have anything to do with it. Okay, second point, God's grace leads us, and now we're flying home. God's grace leads us to say no to ungodliness, verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. A, is we see uh, grace, God's grace in the life of Jesus. We see God's grace in the life of Jesus. The grace of God has appeared already in history, in the past, that offers salvation to all people. This refers to the first coming of Christ. This refers to the birth of Jesus. This, this refers to the, his life and teaching ministry. This refers to the miracles that uh, he displayed, the power of God. This refers to his death on the cross and the, his amazing rex- resurrection. This is the grace of God that has appeared. And this grace, uh, verse 12, God's grace motivates us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness right now. Not someday, right now. Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Um, God's grace here is a teacher. This is an active thing. This isn't just, this is sound doctrine. This isn't just dead orthodoxy. This is sound, healthy, biblically accurate living. And God's grace, the resources in your life, God's word, and what you know about God's word, and the Holy Spirit he's placed in your life, the forgiveness of sins, this is God's grace. And those things teach us, they guide us, they train us to say no, stop, to ungodliness. This is going on whether you hear a sermon or not. This is God's grace. God is at work in your life. God is at work in your circumstances. And he's training you right now. I want you to say no to things that dishonor me. I want you to say yes to things that honor me. Titus chapter 2, verse 12. Um, And then it teaches us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, to live godly lives, in this present age, right now, right now, right now, we're waiting, right now, we're looking forward to Jesus coming back, but he isn't back yet, and it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came, and right now, the focus is godly living, no to ungodliness, yes to godliness, there's probably some things right now in your life that you should say no to, I don't know what they are, You could probably make a list of things that you know God wants you to say no to. Things like pornography, maybe gluttony, lying, stealing, adultery, premarital sex, rage, treating your, your mate poorly. You say no to those things. And there he says it again, the fourth time, to live self-controlled, which is better than being smart. 
Verse 13, God's grace enables us to wait for Jesus' return. While we wait, verse 13, for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. We have this hope. It's a real hope. It isn't just in my head. It isn't just a subjective hope. It's an objective hope. It exists outside of my mind and outside of your mind, and it's this. Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be glorious. And we are living until that day. And uh, notice this, how, how Jesus is described. Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's one of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Christ anywhere in the Bible. The Jesus that you serve is God, great God, and he is our Savior. Verse 14, grace motivates us to do what is good right now. Verse 14, here's the gospel who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself for the people, uh, for himself, a people that are his own. Christ died for you. That's the gospel. That's what he's saying here. He gave himself for us. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. In a few minutes, we're going to share communion. That's the central point. Christ died for you and for me. We're to remember that. He gave his life as a payment. It was a ransom. He did it to redeem us. Why? To purify himself, a people of his own right now. When you place your faith in Christ, your sins were forgiven. You were spiritually cleaned, cleansed for Christ. And what he wants you and I to do is to live that way, day by day. One of the great imageries of the, of the church is that Jesus Christ is the groom, the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. The whole focus of the church, and if you've, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding. I see a couple of you have been to a wedding. I went to a wedding Friday night. The focus of the wedding is who? The bride. And the goal of that day is to present her in all her beauty, whether it works or not. And... What's happening in the church is God is beautifying his bride. He wants to develop his bride to be beautiful and attractive. So people want to see the bride. They're attracted to the bride. They're attracted to the church because of the church's purity, because of the church's lifestyle. They see what God is like, how you relate to each other. That's his plan. And when they see the church, they're pointed to the bridegroom. He's the one. He's our focus. So um, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness, and it comes down to, to so that we would be eager to do what is good, because that's what grace leads us to, to be eager to do what is good. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is a really well-known passage. We all get the grace part. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. That is awesome. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. I I can't earn my salvation. I'll never be able to earn my salvation. It's a gift. Not by works. I can't work for it. So that no one can boast. And here it is. Here's why. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus when we were born again. That's God's work to cause us to be born again. Created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works so that we would be beautiful and attractive to our world which God prepared in advance for us to do. The cool thing is, if you just walk with Christ, you'll just walk right into those things you're supposed to do. 
But if you get off the course, you don't know what you're supposed to do. But if you walk with Christ, you walk right into them. And you know what to do today because you're walking with Christ. Verse 15, God grace, God's grace enables the church to keep on serving Christ in ministry. Verse 15, this is to Titus. These then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Titus, you have some authority. It comes from God. Do not let anyone despise you. Titus, keep on keeping on. Don't let anyone despise you. Don't take it personally. Just keep doing your job. Be faithful. Teach the scriptures. So God's grace leads us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godly living. 